recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagania Saturdays. And I still have the music going, I'm sorry. Today is Saturday, October 19th, 2013. Tonight we will be, we will be continuing our series on 2C Line, and I've subtitled it Pragmatic Genesis. I've done that for a reason. Practical Genesis, to me, is Genesis, is an interpretation of Genesis from the Scripture, not from the humanist desire to interpret science and interpret the Bible according to science, or the humanist nature to interpret the Bible in an egalitarian manner, insisting that we could squeeze Negroes over here in the creation and yellow people over here in the creation because we know they couldn't have descended from Adam. Of course, the regular mainstream churches, that they throw away the law of kind after kind and insist that all the races descended from Adam, which is absolutely biologically and scripturally impossible. But we're not trying to squeeze Negroes into the creation account because they don't belong there. And we're not trying to squeeze yellow squat monsters into the creation account because they don't belong there. Because Yahweh didn't tell us that he created brown or yellow or red people. He only told us that he created the Adamic man. We understand that the Adamic man, the, the word itself means ruddy, the word Adam means ruddy. It's used as an adjective in that manner later in Scripture. However, it's historically evident that the Adamic man is a white man when we understand, through the lens of archaeology and ancient history and from Scripture, that all of the nations of Genesis chapter 10 were white. You won't find Somalians, Chinese, Japanese, Koreans, you won't find Latin American jungle savages or American North American plain savages. You won't find Eskimos. They're not in Genesis. You won't find Bushmen. They're not in Genesis. Yahweh our God didn't take credit or blame for creating those beasts. And tonight we will discuss that. Once again, I have sword brethren with me. Hello. Help me present, make this presentation. Hello, Brian. How are we doing? I'm well yourself. Wonderful. I'd like to say that in the first segment of this program, we discussed the one atom of creation and showed from the biblical context, from statements made in later scriptures, and from Hebrew grammar, just how foolish it is to maintain the position that there was more than one creation of Adam in Genesis. There was only one creation of Adamic man in Genesis. In reality, the same creation is described on multiple occasions in different ways. In the second episode of the series, we walk through Genesis chapter 1 all the way through Genesis 2-3, which we asserted is the first scroll of Genesis. We also showed that the biblical the biblical account often repeats itself, and that the days of Genesis cannot be interpreted as a linear sequence of events related in chronological order. Rather, it is a series of episodes, and each episode details 
different aspects of that creation, progressing through the creation from chaos to Adamic man, the pinnacle of the creation of God. Tonight, we shall begin to consider what I would call the second scroll of Genesis, which begins with Genesis 2-4 and ends with the end of Genesis chapter 4. Therefore, tonight, we won't get through all that in one night. Tonight, we will focus on the creation account of Genesis chapter 2. Do you have anything you would like to comment on? I have a lot of comments on Genesis 3, but we're not getting there tonight. So Genesis 2 is falls on your court on Genesis 2 for the most part, I'd say. Well, well so yeah, you know, I, I understand that you're a, a reader of all the traditional Christian identity interpretations, and I call them traditional because they've been around a lot longer than I have, of Genesis chapter 3. But to me, to me, 2C line begins in Genesis chapter 2, and we will see that tonight. Well, a lot of people, they look at Genesis 2, and they see a different creation. They, they see one where, okay, here's man being made from dust, and Yahweh breathes life into him, and then they look back at Genesis 1 and say, oh, well, here's God making man with a word. So there's two different men. There's one that he made with a word, and there's one that he made with his hands from the dust. Well, well uh, have you encountered that view before? Yeah, well, well, right, and that boils down to the same use of grammar and the same interpretation w which we presented, which is made by scriptural writers later, writers of, of, of scripture later in history. For instance, Paul of Tarsus calls Adam the first man Adam. If Adam, the patriarch, is the first man Adam, then there couldn't be an Adam before Adam. The Hebrew language insists that the Adamic man of Genesis 1.26 is the Adamic man of Genesis 1.27, who is the Adamic man of Genesis 2.7, who is the Adamic man of Genesis chapter 5. And, and we saw that in, in, um, in the first episode where, where these are only, that these minor differences in the spelling are only differences in Hebrew grammar and not differences because they refer to different entities. Different aspects of the creation story describe the creation of Adam in different ways. We see that in later scripture, and, and we pointed that out, where Yahweh says that he created the children of Israel, he formed the children of Israel, and he made the children of Israel. So do we have three groups of the children of Israel created, formed, and made at separate times? Well, that would be ridiculous. Well, well, of course, and it's just as ridiculous to imagine that because it says that Adam was created in one place and formed in another place, that they're two different Adams. That's right. just as ridiculous. There are people imagining that. They're imagining that, right. It's, it's vain imaginations. It, it's not an interpretation of Scripture through Scripture. It's an interpretation of Scripture through their own feelings, and they're interpreting Genesis chapters 1 and 2 in a test tube while ignoring the rest of the Bible. And you can't do that. And we'll find tonight, once again, that you can't do that. You need to understand what Christ had said about the creation and what, what the apostles had said about the creation. You need to understand that historically, all through the Bible, all through the biblical account, there's only one Adamic man. There's not multiple Adams. 
They're never treated anywhere else in Scripture as multiple atoms. Yahweh God, and two, traditional 2C learners love to point this out, is not the author of confusion. If his law is kind after kind, then his word is not going to name two kinds with one name, but which is absolutely absurd. If he repeats ten times that his law is kind after kind in Genesis chapter 1, he's not going to violate that and pull basically what's a Canaanite bait and switch and, and, and create a new species and give it the same name in his word so as to cause us confusion. I, I mean, that's ridiculous to think that. The Adam in Genesis chapter 5 is Adam. He's not Adam. He's not Al-Ha-Adam. He's not Lamed-Vad-Adam. He's Adam. He's Adam. Well, not what if you want him to be six different Adams? Therefore, he relates to the Adam in Genesis chapter 1. It's that simple. It's that if you want to ignore Hebrew grammar and write your own Bible, you go into the clown category. The, the, the clown that thinks he has truth from God, he does that all the time, and that's why he's a clown. People that write their own Bibles, in spite of what the Word of God plainly says, the, uh, I have no other epithet for those people than to consider them to be clowns. They're trying to set themselves up as God, and, and, and we know how that works out. Well, what do you say to someone who thinks he's an Elohim? You don't say anything to him. Well, well you know, the apostles were ashamed at being called gods, and they humbled themselves. And they would have expected the judgment of God to come upon them if they exalted themselves as gods. Just like the judgment of, of, of God came upon Herod Agrippa II in Acts chapter 12, because he esteemed himself to be a god. Time will tell. Explaining to seed line, part three, pragmatic Genesis. Genesis chapter two. Would you like to read the scripture? Genesis 2, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. So just to recap on the gap theory, though, from Genesis 1, the people who were saying that the earth became without form, that there was some previous civilization, well, right here it says the heavens and the earth were finished. So that, that doesn't leave any time for a previous civilization to exist, because the creation is just now finished. Well, well right. It, it does refute the creation. Genesis chapter 2, the chapter division is artificial. We discussed the end of Genesis chapter 2 last week, and I consider it to be actually Genesis chapters 2, verses 1, 2, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3 belong with Genesis chapter 1 because it's finishing the creation account with the day of Yahweh's rest. And that, to me, is the first scroll of Genesis, and we will see that when we, get, we will see the truth of that when we get to Genesis 2, 4. Here in, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and, and on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had made, and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. He began creating 
the what we call the universe, I, I guess, or, or what we might term to be the, the physical existence itself, he began creating that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and here he has finished creating that, and, and it's, it, it's one consistent process which is broken up in, into six episodes as a model for men, which was later used to show men that they should work six days and rest a seventh. Of course, these days, as we've demonstrated, aren't days, they're ages. God rests the seventh day. Genesis 2-3, Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, is the end of the creation account of God. And I am certain was originally a single scroll, here we have the end of what I would term the first scroll of Genesis. In ancient times, as we explained, they didn't have books. They used papyrus. They cut it. They glued it in, into a long square or, or rectangular scroll. They used it for writing, and they rolled it up, and they tied a seal around it. The scrolls could be rolled up and tied to keep them together. The original writing of Moses was most likely a collection of these scrolls. Now, once books were developed later in history, the scrolls were concatenated into a single volume and, and, and written as books. Now, I wouldn't rule out that Moses didn't use clay tablets either. Well, right, which would, obviously papyrus would be a lot easier. Clay tablets would get pretty heavy pretty quick. Well, well right, and very often both, both materials could be used where, where papyrus may be used first and, and then the writing put into clay tablets. But as far as I know, as far as I know, I haven't read everything in archaeology, but I have never seen, I have never seen a, um, a clay tablet having been discovered in archaeology that ever had a, an account of any of the, the early Hebrew scriptures. I've never seen that. So I would be, I, I would be confident to think that Moses wrote this, this material on scrolls. Now, the first books were made on a large scale. Those books came much later. They were made at, at, out of vellum, which is made from animal skins. They were uniformly cut. They were bound at one end. Those were books. But those were all handwritten by scribes, weren't they? Right. right. Well, right. And, and there were archaeological discoveries of small metal books, books made from some metal parts and metal sheets and, and scrolls. The copper scroll, which was among the Dead Sea Scrolls, was made from a sheet of copper. And, and they're a lot more durable, but their use was not really practical and it wasn't really widespread. Like all books of the Bible, Genesis did not have chapter or verse numbers until well into the Middle Ages. Those chapter and verse numbers, when they were assigned, were rather arbitrarily assigned. The scribes didn't get them all right, and, and we could see that right in the New Testament. While many of them were assigned sensibly, many, many were not. Here in Genesis chapter 2, there was a clear demarcation in the text where Genesis 2-3 ends the creation account with the seventh day where Yahweh, God, enters into his period of rest. And as and you pointed period, out, he, he has not exited from the period of rest. 
Right. He has not exited from his period of rest. Paul explains that very thoroughly in Hebrews chapter 4. Yet, you know, the days of creation are, are a model for the literal days of a man's life. And we should use that model to work six days and rest a seventh. That's the model that's handed down in the law later on. But to God, they're not literal days. Right. So hypothetically, if the first day was actually a trillion days, as we understand days, and God tried to convey that to someone and said a trillion days, they wouldn't understand what a trillion was, would they? Well, well, no, absolutely not. But Peter used an example and said a year to the Lord is a thousand days. Well, yeah, but it could be 10,000 days. It could be, we, we can't contain God inside of time. We, we covered that thoroughly. I believe we discussed that thoroughly in the first segment of, of the series. The, the, um, the scope of the first Genesis account where it says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, cannot be imagined as if it is describing some finite action which ends before Genesis 2-4 begins. Rather, it encompasses the entire idea of the creation of man right through Genesis chapter 5 and, and, and even beyond that where we see the same exact language is used of Adam's descendants in Genesis 5.1, that Yahweh created them male and female. Well, well, he's in his day of rest because Genesis 5.1 is a reference back to Genesis 1.26 and 1.27. It's not a new creation, or, or else it would be, what, an eighth-day creation, a ninth-day, a tenth-day creation? I mean... Well, aren't, there, <laughs> aren't there people that believe in eighth-day creation, Bill? But, well, they are, and basically they don't understand that the Scripture is not a linear chronological account. Hebrews chapter 4 says that Yahweh is still in his day of rest. There is no eighth day, because he ceased, he rested from all his creation. Yahweh entered his Sabbath after Adamic man was creation, what was created. However, the creation perpetuates itself, male and female, from the beginning. A parallel by which we may better understand this language, is found in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 5. And there are others in the Bible, but we'll, start, we'll, we'll offer this as a singular example here, where Yahweh says, or, or where Isaiah says, And now, saith Yahweh, that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. This is a messianic prophecy, right? Though Israel... Be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God shall be my strength. Now the word Israel here refers to Jacob and to all of his offspring, and they were all created at once when Yahweh formed Jacob in the womb. He's talking about, saith Yahweh that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him, though Israel be not gathered. So he's talking about forming Jacob in the womb, a singular patriarch, right? And then saying, though Israel be not gathered, as a reference to all of Jacob, meaning all of Jacob's descendants. Well, they weren't all formed in the womb as individuals at that time. But when Jacob was formed in the womb, all of his seed, all of his descendants were 
actually formed with him because they were all in his loins when he was born. The word Israel in this verse, Isaiah 49.5, refers to Jacob and all of his offspring. And they were all created at once when Yahweh formed Jacob in the womb of Rebekah, his mother. And even before that, since they were all in the loins of Adam. While all Israelites were formed at once in the loins of Jacob and in the mind of God, today, Israelites are still being born into the world. But they were formed all the way back thousands of years ago. That, that's the language of Genesis, where he created them male and female. He created the whole creation of the Adamic people when he created Adam. From Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 5 and beyond, it is not a chronological, chronologically linear account of a continuing series of events. And, and so many fools have insisted on that. If this were so, we would have at least three different races of Adam inhabiting several different earths under the light of several different heavens. And we'll see that again here in Genesis 2, 4. So, some, some people are concerned. They want to know why God had the rest. And my explanation is simply that since he's done working... And God had the rest as an example of, to men, period. Right, but he, by, defi by definition, if he's not working, he's resting. Right. If he's not working, he's resting. He created all his works. His creation ended. The pinnacle of that creation is Adamic man. While the creation self-perpetuates... God is portrayed as resting because there are no new creations since the creation of Adam in the sixth day. And that's a model for men that we rest six days and work a seventh. That is why the story is told in that manner. Because that's the will of God. It's a model for men. It's a model for his Sabbaths. The creation story was created. What was written by Moses, what was revealed to Moses and written down in a manner which would support the law which was to be transmitted and written to, by, to and by Moses later on. So the, so the creation account, even though not any of it is untrue, it's written in a way that supports what is going to be the customs of the people because it's the will of God that man works six days and rests the seventh. And, and that's clear later on in the scripture. So when God transmit, transmitted the creation account to Moses for the posterity of the children of Israel to have that record, he used that model that he expected them to follow. That's all. Well, that seems sensible. These are the founding documents of a nation that has special relationship with God. Those founding documents and the laws that God expected that nation to follow are coordinated hand in hand. The Genesis account is created, the Genesis creation account is a model of how God would expect the people that he created to act. So literary devices were used in the story in order to relate those things to the people so that the people would learn them 
because that's what God wanted the people to learn. All right. I don't know if everybody could wrap their minds around that. So I continue with Genesis 2. Well, well, to recap, Genesis from chapter 1, verse 1, through Genesis chapter 5 and beyond is not a chronologically linear account of a continuing series of events. If this were so, we would have at least three different races of Adam inhabiting several different earths under the light of several different heavens. All of this seeming conflict is resolved, however, once we realize that the account from Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 2-3 is an account, is an original account of the creation of God told from one perspective where Adamic man is the pinnacle of that creation. And then the account which we are about to embark on from Genesis 2-4 through the end of Genesis chapter 4. That is a separate account of the creation of Adamic man, along with parables relating portions of his early history. And this separate account builds upon the first creation account. Finally, Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, begins another new scroll containing an account of the history of the generations of Adam, which is the race of Adamic man, the generations of Adam which descended from the first man, Adam. So we really have one book or one scroll from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-3. It's a complete account of the creation with Adamic man as the pinnacle of that creation. We have another scroll from Genesis 2-4 through the end of Genesis 4, which is a history of Adam and Eve, the first, the first Adamites, our first parents, and that history is told in parables. Then we have another, a third scroll, starting with Genesis 5-1, where it says explicitly, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And it's a separate scroll, it's a new scroll, and it talks about Adam's descendants down to the flood of Noah. And conspicuously, Cain is absent amongst those descendants. Well, well, yes, he is, because he's not included in the generations of Adam. But he is included out of necessity in the, the, the second scroll of Genesis, which is the story of Adam and Eve, because he is a part of their life, and he figures in the later history. So that book ends with his descendants. Right. The evangelicals like to claim that Cain is not listed amongst the descendants because he was a murderer and was sent away to wander. Okay, David was a murderer. David had Uriah the Hittite killed. He, he was technically a murderer. He was punished for it by God. The, the, the sword would be upon his house forever. There, there, are, there, there are many murderers in the line of Christ. There are many wicked kings. Some of the most wicked men in history were the kings of Judah, who were the ancestors of Christ. They're not excluded from Scripture. Right. So clearly, Cain is not listed because he's not a descendant. It doesn't say this is the book of the generations of Adam, those who are in good standing. Right. We'll cover that at, at, at great length when we get to Genesis chapters 3 and 4. All right. Right now we're at Genesis chapter 2. Shall I pick back up with verse 2? 
Well, well, right. No, well, no. We're we're at verse four, and uh-huh. and we'll um. To me, this is the first verse of the second book of creation, the second book of Genesis, or the second well, scroll of Genesis. And I want to give examples of recapitulation in the Bible, because some of the, the um, some of our adversaries, especially in the Jewish quarter of Christian identity, the Novemberites, have claim that there's no recapitulation in the Bible, which is an absolutely absurd claim, as we pointed out last week. Genesis 1, verses 14 through 16, they recapitulate the creation of light, darkness, day and night in Genesis 1, verses 3 through 5. Genesis, well, the only, alter- the only alternative is that God made two worlds, he made two suns and two moons. Actually, three, because we're, we're about to see a third here in Genesis 2-4, right? That now, the, recapitul- the, 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 the creation of man in Genesis one twenty six and one twenty seven is recapitulated in Genesis 2-7 and in Genesis 5-1. The Tower of Babel event is the last verse in Genesis chapter 10, is recapitulated in Genesis chapter 11. If you want to read Genesis 1 and 2 as a linear and and chronologically correct sequence of events, and if you want to claim that there were two creations of Adam, then you better read Genesis 10 and 11 as a linear chronological sequence of events, and you better admit that there were two towers of Babel and, 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 and men were spread across the earth after the flood twice. It's absurd. So, so there's, pl- there's recapitulation in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And in Ezekiel 38 and 39... Well, we we have um, the invasion of Gog and Magog described twice. It can't be describing a, a linear sequence of events. It's two visions of the same event. Gen- Genesis chapter 10 ends with, with the line in verse 32, these are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the, flood, in the earth after the flood. So, so we see the nations spread out across the land, the, the, the people of Genesis, the, pe- the descendants of Noah spread out into nations across the land in their separate nations with their separate tongues. In Genesis chapter 10, verse 32. In Genesis chapter 11, it says, and the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. What in the hell is going on there? I'll tell you what's going on. It's called recapitulation. That's what's going on. Just like Genesis 2-7 recapitulates Genesis 1:26 and 27, and it's recapitulated again. In other words, the story's retold from a different viewpoint, again in Genesis 5.1. So the people that claim there is no recapitulation, do they just not get it or do they not want to get it? They don't want to get it because they have a humanist agenda. The humanist agenda, the egalitarian humanist agenda, wants to squeeze the other races in different, into different creations of Adam. Swift and Comparate did that. They were wrong. 
There's one creation of Adam, and it's told three times. The language proves it, and all subsequent scripture proves it. Genesis 2.4. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the days that Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew, for Yahweh God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground. Well, now this can't be because who, who was created in Genesis one one twenty six? This must be the creation of, a, of another man, Adam. Well, well, it's not the creation of another man, and it's not the creation of a new heavens. And if you want to believe that this is the creation of a different man from Genesis one twenty six and twenty seven, you better believe that this is the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. In fact, Compare in his article, you're familiar with the article, The Cain Satanic Seedline by Compare? He said that in Genesis 2 5, that since Adam man had already been created in Genesis 1, that now Yahweh is creating the Negro to till the ground. And that's absolutely absurd because the word for man here is also Adam. Right. And the word in 2.7 is Adam. And it's Eth Ha-Adam in Genesis 2.7. And it's Eth Ha-Adam in Genesis 1.27. anybody only Adam in Genesis 1.26. And it's only Adam in Genesis 5.1. And they're all the same. It's only different Hebrew parts of speech. It's not different Adams. This is... This is another story of creation. It's a separate scroll that's telling another story of the creation of man, this time we're going to see that that story is built on and elaborated upon to include parts of man's early history, but it's another story of the creation of the same Adam told from a different perspective. So it's saying that this is the Adam that was made in the day when the heavens and the earth were created. It's telling us that it's the same Adam. It's not telling us it's a different Adam, unless we want to believe that the first universe was disposed of by Yahweh, and and I don't know why he didn't get rid of the, the, the account of it along with it, and he never told us how he disposed of it, and he's building a new one here. That's what you would have to believe, and it's ridiculous. It's simply a different scroll telling the same story from a different perspective. Right, and furthermore, the idea that we would need Negroes to till the ground, they don't make particularly great farmers. I think that this is just an attempt to squeeze the other races into the creation story, and probably an attempt to justify slavery. Well, well, absolutely. And, And it doesn't fit. And it doesn't belong, because this is Adam being created here. And, and this is the Adam who, for whom Eve is ultimately created. So Compare was just ridiculous. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And Yahweh God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. 
And Yahweh God. Two things to say that you're getting a little ahead of me. In in Genesis 2-4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day, a reference back to the the epochs of the first creation, which we see in Genesis chapter 1. In the day that Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens. This is telling us that it's referencing back to the Genesis 1 creation account. And it's telling about the creation of man from a different perspective. That's why the generations of the heavens and the earth, in the day that Yahweh God made the heavens, that's why that language is there, to tell us that this story is a, 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 a different perspective of the creation of man, which is found in the first story. Otherwise we have to believe that it's a whole new creation period and that the heavens and earth are being recreated. Now, verse 5, and every plant of the field before it was in the earth, that, that's just reflecting upon the state of the earth at the third and fourth days of creation, leading up to the point where the creation of man is proposed in Genesis one twenty six. Now, Genesis 2-7, and, and I have, there's a lot I would like to discuss here with this spirit, and I think that it's important to, to, um, to, to elucidate it at this point, you were going to say. Well, I was going to say I'm concerned. I'm trying to put myself in Comparé's shoes and look at this from his perspective. He contends that the Genesis 2-5 creation or the, the realization in Genesis 2-5, rather, that there's no man to till the ground, necessitating a creation of the Negro man to till the ground in Genesis 2-7, he must then be accepting that the Negro man in 2-7 becomes a living soul. And not only that, but is the husband of Eve, and not only that, but Eve is the mother of all living, and the mother of Seth, who's in Adam's image, and basically the whole Bible belongs to niggers. Right, so he seems to be jumping back and forth. In the first half of Genesis 2, he thinks it's the, the Negro man that tilled the field, but then when it comes to the point where the woman's being made for the man Adam, it goes back to a white man, a white Adam. Well, well absolutely. It's, first, the Comparé account is contrary to history. Second, it could be demonstrated from other of Comparé's papers that Comparé is contradicting himself. Right, so he's just trying to fit Negroes into a story that they don't belong in. That's it. They have no business in the story in the first place. That, that they have a, that they're in the story, but not how Comparé suspected them to be in the story. He's a traditional Christian who understands that the, the history of the later part of the Bible and understands that the children of Israel are the, the Anglo-Saxon and Celtic nations and, and related peoples of Europe, but he's trying to interpret the Genesis account in a humanist, egalitarian manner, in order to find a place for the other races, which are not mentioned in the creation of God in well, the Genesis account. You know, if you're writing a um, biography about your life, an autobiography, and you're telling the story of your descendants and your ancestors, and you don't include any Negroes, and someone wants to know why, well, you'd say, well, they're not in my family tree, and they're not amongst my descendants, so they're not included. You know, when you're mapping out your family tree, it's your ancestors, not the guy across the street's ancestors. Right. So he's trying to open the door. I don't know if he has an agenda to open the door. That's a, I should rephrase that. He's trying to 
force into the story people about whom the story is not referring to. It's not a story of their creation. It's a story of our creation. So they're not part of the story. They never were part of the story. Right. So if you're reading your daughter the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and she wants Cinderella in the story, well, she's not part of that story. Right. Genesis 2-7. And Yahweh God formed man in the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Genesis 2-7 has long been interpreted as the act by which Yahweh God imparted his spirit into the Adamic man. And that's fine. But I would insist, however, that if Yahweh is a spirit, then his image is spiritual. And that the imparting of the spirit is therefore represented in Genesis 1.26 and Genesis 5.3 as well. All three of these are different accounts of the creation of the same Adamic race, beginning with the first man, Adam. And Adam was indeed the first man. He simply wasn't the first hominid. There's a difference. I want to discuss part of um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Well, may I ask, when when you say he wasn't the first hominid, are you saying that there were white people prior to Adam, or there were hominid, you know, um, Negro beast, creature, fallen angel, hybrids, whatever you want to call them, before Adam? And both before Adam. They were evidently both before Adam. But they were both, and and we'll see this discussed here tonight, later on in this presentation, when we get there, that they are the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we will see that from Scripture. Because there was a question on the Christogenia Forum. A member there wanted to know if there was incest in the beginning and if we're all the results of incest. They were wondering if Adam and Eve were the first and only two white people on the world at that time, where did the rest of us come from? And I said the short answer is that there was not incest in the beginning and that it would take me a while to explain. Well, well, I would say that there are reasons, that there are social reasons why later incest was forbidden in the law. But if Adam... If Eve is created from Adam's own flesh, and Adam has sex with Eve and has a child, and that child is accepted by by God, isn't that even closer than incest? Well, that's probably more of a philosophical question than well, a biological question. It is a, a philosophical question, but a woman formed from your left arm would be closer to you physically than your sister. Don't you think? Well, it raises an interesting question. Was she just a female version of Adam with all of his chromosomes except, you know, female version, or did she have half of his chromosomes and God created the other half specifically for her? No, no, that Eve was made from Adam's rib. That's what the scripture says. So, she was holy from Adam. That's what so, the scripture says. There's no um, suppositioning additional ingredients. Uh, so we, we consider her then basically a female version of Adam. Well, right. That's what the scripture says. She's flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. How could you, how could you get closer than that? All right. We're getting off topic because this should be a Genesis chapter 5 discussion. All right. I will save these issues for Genesis 5.
Paul of Tarsus says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting with verse 35, but some will say, how are the dead raised? And with what sort of body will they come? Fools, that which you sow, is it not made alive even if it may die? And that which you sow, and, and that which you sow is the seed, right? It, it is not the body that you sow that will be producing itself, but a bare grain. Whether, for example, of wheat or of any of the rest, in other words, the bare grain produces the body, right? And Yahweh gives to it a body just as he has willed. And to each of those seeds its own body. And here we see that the Spirit of God is transmitted to each Adamic man through the DNA or seed. For this reason, and, and we'll see that as this, as, as this discourse of Paul's progresses. For this reason, Peter warned that we must be born from above of incorruptible seed rather than corruptible seed, 1 Peter 3.23. And in the New Testament, in, in the Christiani New Testament, because that word for seed is spora and not sperma, I've translated it as parentage. Verse 39 of 1 Corinthians 15. Not all flesh is the same flesh, but one flesh of man and another flesh of beasts and another of birds and another of fish. And, and therefore, I would say it's folly to make men out of beasts, right? Can't be done. And bodies in heaven and bodies on earth. But different is the effulgence of the heavenly and different is that of the earthly. One effulgence of the sun, and another effulgence of the moon, and another effulgence of the stars. A star differs in, efful in, a, in effulgence from, and, and the inferences, other stars. In this way also is the restoration of the dead. It is sown in decay, meaning it is sown in fleshly seed. It is raised in incorruption, the eternal spirit which grows out of that incorruptible Adamic seed. It is sown in dishonor, another reference to fleshly seed and the act of sex, right? It is raised in honor, the eternal spirit, which grows from that fleshly seed. It is sown in weakness, a reference to the fleshly seed. It is raised in power, a reference to the eternal spirit. It is sown a natural body, fleshly seed. It is raised a spiritual body, the eternal spirit. And Paul qualifies that and he says, if there is a natural body, there's no Adamic man who's actually an Adamic man without a spiritual body. Paul says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. The inference is body which is the eternal spirit. And just as it is written, the first man, Adam, the first anthropus, Adam. Paul is saying that Adam is the first anthropus, the Greek word for man. There's no anthropus. There might be other hominids before Adam. They're either fallen angels or they're corruptions of God's creation. The first man, Adam, came into a living soul. The last Adam into a life-producing spirit. Now, we have to watch what's going on here, right? Because this is true 
of both Adam and Christ. But Paul's making an analogy. Adam in Genesis is an analogy for the earthly first man, and Christ is an analogy for the spiritual second man. That's what Paul's doing here, is he's taking Adam and Christ and making up an analogy. He's making an analogy. The first man, Adam, came into a living soul, the last Adam into a life-producing spirit. But the spiritual was not first, rather the natural. The natural body was created first. Then the spiritual, because the spiritual body grows out of the same DNA and is not realized by man until the resurrection. The first man from out of earth, of soil. The second man from out of heaven. Adam represents the first man from out of earth. Christ represents the second man from out of heaven. However, this is all an analogy for the two natures of Adamic man, the fleshly nature and the spiritual nature. And Adam had the spirit as well as Christ. But Christ is the firstborn from among the dead. So, what do you mean so, by that, though? The firstborn from among the dead. You mean the first to arise from the dead? No. He's Yahweh God himself. He is Yahweh God incarnate. So he existed as a spirit before any Adamite existed as a spirit because Yahweh imparted his spirit to us. All right. So, so I just wanted to... to um, elucidate the fact that the Spirit, as Paul is, ex is explaining in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Spirit comes through the same seed, through the DNA which God created in our first father, Adam. It doesn't come any other way. That There are clowns who, who believe they have truth from God, who insist that spirits are floating around in heaven and, and are um, placed into newly born Adamic children, which is absolutely absurd. Placed? It, that it, almost sounds like Scientology. It's well, well, it is Scientology. It's quackery, and 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 it's sad that it passes for Christianity. But that too comes from Wesley Swift. So they're just floating around up in heaven, waiting to inhabit newly born white children. Right, but in fact, the Scripture clearly says that. The spiritual body is sown a fleshly seed. It's sown a natural body. It's sown as a seed. It's sown in decay. It's sown in mortality. It's sown in corruption, which is the fleshly seed. It's raised the spiritual seed. The spiritual body, if there is a natural body, meaning a natural body of Adamic man, if you are in fact not a broken cistern, a broken cistern is a bastard that cannot hold the Spirit of God. If you are an Adamic man, your eternal body, which is your spirit, grows with your physical body. It's sown in the same seed and grows with your physical body. You just don't see it as long as you're in this life. You can't. Because we perceive the world through our fleshly senses. With that, we should move on to Genesis 2.8. Genesis 2.8, and Yahweh God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and 
there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made Yahweh God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the people who want to say the other races are present in the garden, it says he's making trees that are pleasant to the sight grow. I mean, it, it may seem petty, but, you know, Negroes aren't pleasant to the sight. But, well, there's absolutely no indication yet that any other races were created by God except the Adamic race. Right. The beasts, and, and we'll talk about this in a future installment of this series, the beasts of Genesis 1.25 and, and the fifth day creation, as they were understood throughout Scripture, were beasts of burden, oxen, cattle, um, wild beasts, fair, what, which is the, um, the Greek word, which is a wild beast, perhaps a lion, perhaps a tiger, perhaps a hyena, a monkey. The cattle were beasts what were, or beasts of the earth, what were four-footed tetrapods, they're called in the Septuagint. They're called catanus in the Septuagint. A, a catanus is a steer or an ox. Or, or, or any other um, farm animal, a, a, a horse, any beast of burden, they're not, that there is absolutely no reason to suspect that there are two-legged hominids who are beasts in the Genesis creation of beasts. Now, I, I would rather reserve the rest of my discussion in that manner for later when we do discuss the so-called beast of the field because I don't want to have to, by necessity, preclude some of the things I'm going to say here tonight about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. All right. So with that, then, I'll just continue. Well, well there's a lot for me to say about Genesis 2, 8, and 9 here, so, so let's not get ahead of ourselves. Genesis 2, 8, and Yahweh God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put in a man whom he had formed. We're going to identify with all surety the Garden of Eden later in this presentation. You mean its geographic location? The geographic location of the Garden of Eden, yes. We are going to identify it with all certainty. Okay? It's not hard. It's real easy. It's right in front of our faces, Okay? It's not in the Pamir Plateau. It's not in the Himalayas. It's not in some crazy British-Israel pipe dream. It's right there in Mesopotamia, according to the word of Moses, according to the Bible, which I, I would rather believe the Bible than, than the quacks in British Israel who think that Jews are Judah and, and niggers belong in the kingdom of heaven. Well, if they think Jews are Judah and the Germans are Assyrians, then as far as I'm concerned, you can just put them in a straitjacket and put them in a, 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 you know, a padded room. Oh, right. And they couldn't find the Garden of Eden either, believe me. The word Eden, the word Eden is found in Sumerian texts where it is clearly a, a, a simple reference for the steppe. S-T-E-P-P-E, -P -P -E, the steppe, the grassy lands in the temperate climates that in, in Asia, that this word was borrowed into Akkadian where it was spelled Edenu. And, and in his Hebrew dictionary, Strong merely defined the word after its obvious Hebrew root as pleasure. The root can also mean soft or pleasant. And, and therefore its relation to the, the steppe and, and the pleasant grassy land, in, in my opinion. Eastward in Eden, 
Yeah, you know, this language clearly means, and, and the Septuagint Greek as well as the NAS, the, the New American Standard Version, had eastward in Eden. In the eastward part of Eden is where the garden was planted, right? The writing is from a Hebrew perspective, and one needs only to look to the east of the Levant for the location of the garden. And we'll demonstrate that when we get into the further verses of this chapter. Moses more accurately describes the location of Eden further on in the chapter in the text found in verses 10 through 14. Verse 9, And out of the ground made Yahweh God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now, it's possible that these trees are literal food-producing trees. And those which follow in the second part of the verse are meant to be allegorical trees. However, in any event, every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food did not exist in this garden until Adam was placed in the garden. If it is accepted that these trees are allegorical trees representing family lines, which is what trees are do in Scripture quite often, then these trees can only be the early Adamic families of our race. Later, in the same analogy, later, this same analogy was used to describe the Adamic Genesis 10 nations in Ezekiel chapter 31, and I'm going to quote a few verses of that. And it came to pass in the 11th year, in the third month, in the first day of the month, that the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, speaking to Ezekiel, right? Speak unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, whom art thou like in thy greatness? Behold, the Assyrian was a cedar in Lebanon with fair branches, and with a shadowing shroud and of a high stature, and his top was among the thick bows. The waters made him great. The deep set him up on high with the rivers running around his, about his plants and sent out her little rivers into all the trees of the field. Therefore his height was exalted above all the trees of the field and his bows were multiplied. And his branches became long because of the multitude of waters when he shot forth. All of the fowls of heaven made their nests in his bows and under his branches did all the beasts of the field bring forth their young and under his shadow dwelt all great nations. Thus was he fair in his greatness, in the length of his branches, for his root was great by great waters. The cedars in the garden of God could not hide him. The fir trees were not like his bows, and the chestnut trees were not like his branches, nor any tree in the garden of God was like unto him in his beauty. I have made him fair by the multitude of his branches, so that all the trees of Eden that were in the garden of God envied him. Here we have that same analogy used as the one we see in Genesis 2.9, that all these trees were made to grow out of the garden of God in Eden. And the Assyrian is the greatest of these trees. And in Ezekiel's time, we had all of the, the white Adamic Genesis 10 nations 
dwelling in and around Mesopotamia and around the land of Assyria. And the Assyrians ruled the world at this time. They were the biggest tree in the Garden of God. Now the Assyrians are descendants of Asher, the son of Shem, in Genesis chapter 10. They didn't exist until Asher was born and had descendants, long after Genesis 2.9. However, we want to take this allegory and give it a finite period of time. And it doesn't necessarily refer to a finite period of time. It could refer to the growth of the entire Adamic race from the time, beginning with the time of Adam. It's an allegory. It's a parable. And it could very easily refer to all of the Genesis 10 nations or all of the, the antediluvian pre-flood family trees which grew out of Adam after Adam was put in the garden. Now, did that happen immediately? No, but it's an allegory. These trees that are pleasant to the eye and good for food could refer to real fruit trees in the garden, or they could refer to those allegorical Genesis 10 or, or Adamic family trees, as we see the same exact language used in the same exact way in Ezekiel chapter 31. But they sure as hell can't refer to squat monsters, yellow beasts, and Negroes. There's absolutely no scriptural basis for that. None whatsoever. That's just hateful, Bill. Don't you want them in the garden? Well, they are in the garden. We will see them in the garden, or we will see at least some of them in the garden. They are there. In the next part of Genesis 2.9, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life. I've never had a satisfactory explanation from the evangelicals as to what exactly the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is. Well, we're going to see what it is. And I think we have a satisfactory explanation. Only Christian identity, if we do it right, has a satisfactory explanation. The tree of life is Yahweh God. Yahshua Christ, who is Yahweh God incarnate, and his race of Adamic man. This is proven in scripture. In Genesis 3.22, where the man, Adam, is instructed to grasp the tree of life and live forever. Since Adamic man only has eternal life through Yahshua Christ, then Yahshua Christ must be the tree of life. And he tells us in the scripture, he is the vine, and he tells his apostles, and you are the branches. He says, I am the true vine, and you are the branches. He is the vine. He is the tree of life. His Adamic people are the branches. And therefore, the tree of life is the river of God. The race of Adam with Christ as its head and its root. These are the wheat of the parable of the wheat and the tares, which were planted at the beginning of the world, which happened at the founding of Adamic society. All right. Can I cut in with just a quick question? I'd like to ask you, um, 
what, if anything, is a tear good for? Well, of course they're good for nothing. We'll get to tares in Genesis chapter 3. If Christ is the true vine, and his people are the branches, he calling himself the true vine, that suggests that there is a spurious vine which has its own branches. And therefore, if the tree of life is a race, and it is, it only makes sense that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is also a race. But we have to ask, what race? If Adam is the first man, as Paul also attested, then if we are compelled to read this chapter chronologically, Adam doesn't yet even have a wife in which there may be other man. However, this other tree is already in the garden. Matthew 13.35 tells us exactly why we have to understand this we can't just read Genesis and understand this. We have to understand this by turning to the words of Christ and not rely upon Genesis alone. Because Christ said in Matthew 13:35 that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which had been kept secret from the foundation of the world. So the Genesis account is not quite complete because okay. Christ uttered things which were kept secret since the foundation of the world. In Matthew 13, he's basically saying that um, I have to tell you exactly what happened in Genesis because here we are and you still haven't gotten it because it's been kept secret since the foundation of the world. Right? I mean, that is what happens in Matthew 13. They want an explanation for the parable of the wheat and the tares, and that's that's Genesis. That's Genesis 3. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a direct relation. John chapter 15, from verse 1 and verse 5. I am the true vine. I am the vine. Ye are the branches. The Son of Man sowed the good seed, according to Matthew 13, because Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God incarnate. He is the root, and he is the branch. He is the first, and he is the last. Therefore, he is the son, and he is the father. He is the husbandman. As he tells us in the parable of the wheat and the tares, in that same part, as you just mentioned, that same part of Matthew 13, where Christ told us that he will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world, he tells us, that as soon as he sold the good, sowed the good seed, his enemy sowed the bad seed. And only the words of Christ can reveal who that enemy is. In Luke chapter 10, he begins to tell us who they are. Well, when you, when you mention that, he said, I am the true vine. Just the implication there, if you're in a, a probate court and they're, reading off, you know, who the items are going to in the will, and there's a, a false heir sitting in there about to claim an inheritance that's not his, and you barge in and declare, I am the true heir, the implication is you're accusing the person that's sitting down about to get the inheritance of being the false heir. So to say, I am the true vine, the direct implication is that there's a false vine out there. Absolutely. And that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From Luke chapter 10, from the Christogenian New Testament, 
from verse 17. Then the 72 returned with great joy, saying, Prince, even the demons are subjected to us by your name. And he said to them, I beheld the adversary, which is Satan, or the enemy, right, the adversary. I beheld the adversary falling as lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given to you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and upon all the power of the enemy. And no one shall by any means do you injustice. But in this you must not rejoice, that spirits are subject to you. Rather, rejoice that your names are inscribed in the heavens. Now, there are entire denominations that have sprung up around the idea that we should be able to take up serpents and scorpions and drink poison. And right, but just... he's tread upon skirts. So, well, well, that's Mark 16, right? That, that's right. entirely different, right? That, that spurious entire section of Mark 16 doesn't even belong in Scripture. But, Here, serpents are used the same way that they're used throughout the New Testament as an allegory for a certain race of people. And they are a race of people. And Luke chapter 11 discusses that, and we will, um, that, that's a discussion for Genesis chapter 3, right? Right. But I just wanted to say, I think it's made clear what you've just said when it says, over all the power of the enemy, the enemy are not snakes and scorpions that we find in the desert. It's clearly allegorical. And no one shall by any means do you injustice. But in this you must rejoice, that spirits are subject to you. Rather rejoice, that, but in this you must not rejoice, that spirits are subject to you. Rather rejoice that your names are inscribed in the heavens. At that hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I give praise to you, Father, sovereign of the heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and have revealed them to babes. Yeah, Father, because such have had approval before you, all things have been given over to me by my Father. Of, of course, Christ is Yahweh and transferred those things to himself. And no one knows who the Son is, if not the Father, and who the Father is, if not the Son, and the Son shall reveal it to whom he should determine. In Luke chapter 10, we see that Satan, the adversary, demons, serpents, and scorpions are all related. And they're, as you said, they are allegorical allegorical serpents and scorpions, which are really people, all the power of the enemy. That's made clear by the power of the enemy and no one doing any injustice against you because literal serpents and scorpions can't do injustice against you. They're just animals crawling around outside. Well, as we will see when we present Genesis chapter 3 here, throughout the New Testament we see that the term serpent was used allegorically of certain people who were opposed to Christ people whom he also said were not his sheep, John 10, and who had a father and therefore an origination who was someone other than his father and who was a devil. So so they don't have the same origin that he has. This fall of Satan is mentioned in one other place in Scripture in Revelation chapter 12. Do you want to read from verses 7 through um, through 9 from the Christogenia New Testament? I yeah. don't have the Christogenia right in front of me right now. I can go retrieve that, or would you like to read for now? I'll read from my notes. Right. In Revelation chapter 12 from the Christogenia New Testament, and there was a war in heaven, Michael and his messengers, or angels, fighting with the dragon. And the dragon fought, 
and his messengers, and they did not prevail, nor was their place found any longer in heaven. And the great dragon had been cast down, that serpent of old, who was called the false accuser, or the devil, and the adversary, or Satan, who is called the devil and Satan in the King James Version, he who deceives the whole inhabited earth had been cast into the earth, and his messengers had been cast down with him. Now, it can be made manifest, and I have done this in, in my Christrike series, my commentary on a revelation. It can be made manifest that this prophecy in the Revelation chapter 12 has multiple fulfillments, and it does. And that the word heaven is not necessarily to be taken literally in its interpretation. However, there are certain things which are absolutely clear, which this prophecy, with all clarity, establishes, and we can be certain of the following conclusions. One, Satan was cast out of heaven, and his place is found there no longer. Two, Satan, the great dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, and the fallen angels are all one and the same entity. And the phrase here, that old serpent or that serpent of old, can only refer to the Genesis chapter 3 serpent of the Garden of Eden. The serpent, the next conclusion, the serpent connected to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis chapter 3, already being in the garden when Adam was placed there. The war in heaven and the fall of angels which sinned, the angels which sinned, as Jude calls them, must have taken place before the creation of Adam. Yet, this was not revealed. It was kept secret from the foundation of the world as you pointed out, in direct relation to the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew chapter 13, and we're told that by Christ himself. The next conclusion, Herod the Great, who was an Edomite, who attempted to slay the Christ child as soon as it was born, was a representative of this Satan. He had to be a member of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or, or, or a descendant of those fallen angels, and, and we'll establish that in our commentary on Genesis chapter 3. The last conclusion, this Satan has been making war with the woman, who, are the, who is symbolic of the children of Israel, ever since he was cast out of heaven. So there are five conclusions, which are absolutely scriptural, and which are absolutely firm, which must be made from that scripture in Revelation chapter 12, all relating to the knowledge, to, to the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the events in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. Do you have any comment? Well, when you refer to Herod, you're referring to um, Herod the first, the first Tetrarch? The Herod that attempted, well, Herod the Great, I hate to call him that, Herod the Kike. Herod the Great was the king of Judea who, who right. attempted to slay the Christ child. All right. the, the father of um, Herod Antipas. The father of Herod Archelaus and Herod Antipas, yes. All right. I just wanted to clarify that. The first Herod. 
Well, we, we've seen the seed war. It's still going on today, and right now it seems that in the corporeal realm, in the realm of the flesh, we're losing in quite handily, if I do say so myself. What was it that that Rabbi Reichhorn said in the late 1800s, that wars are the Jews' harvest, for with them we kill the Christians and gain control of their gold? A hundred million have died, and the end is not yet. Well, right, the end is not yet. But we win in the end. That's okay. I mean, that, that accounts around two or three hundred million, isn't it? Well, if you count the the, um, the wars against the saints by the Catholic Church, the Thirty Years' War, the the right. um, the Napoleon Wars were all the same part of the same game. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's a pretty high number. Right. Well, I mean, weren't they told that? The blood of all the slain prophets down to righteous Abel was on their hands. Right. Here are some further revelations concerning these fallen angels. And this is from the Apostle Jude. We've already seen it from the words of Christ because the revelation is the word of Christ. From Jude, from his epistle, from verse 5. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, I'm quoting from the King James Version, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not, and the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. And that word strange is the Greek word heteros, which means different are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now here in Jude verses 5 through 7, we have certain of the children of Israel who failed, were being compared by Jude to the angels which kept not their first estate, whose sin was in like manner to those of Sodom and Gomorrah in that they committed fornication and went after different flesh. In other words, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah lusted after flesh, which was different from their own, in like manner to the fallen angels, the angels which left their first estate. And it is the fallen angels who are reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, awaiting the judgment of the great day. However, Jude tells us they're still here. They're still here among us, even though they're in everlasting chains under darkness. They're still here. And if they weren't still here, Jude would not have been able to refer to them in, the, in verse 8, in the present and the future tenses, where he wrote, and I quote, Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh despise dominion and speak evil of dignities now Jude can't be talking about the people of Sodom and Gomorrah he can't be talking about the children of Israel who died in the, in, the, in the desert he's only talking about the fallen angels here 
And he's talking about them in the present and the future tense, even though he says that they're reserved in, in everlasting chains under darkness. They're not literal chains. That's my point. Verse 9. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebukes thee. But these, here we go back to the present tense, but these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts. In those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, the way of race mixing, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah, these were back to the present tense. He's still talking about these fallen angels. Oh. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming, we're still in the present tense, foaming out of their own shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. You already pointed out that there's race mixing in regards to they have gone in the way of Cain, but also ran greedily after the heir of Balaam. Huh? All Baal worship entails some sort of miscegenation or some sort of perverse sexual practice. Well, oh, yes, it does, and they're the authors of that, too. The way of Cain is the way of race mixing. The error of Balaam is the way of race mixing. Now, Korah, Korah was an Israelite, but if we go back and examine the story, the account of Korah and his gainsaying, we find that Korah tried to set up his own priesthood. Cain did the same thing when he competed with Abel for the priesthood in Genesis chapter 4, and we'll discuss that at length. Korah tried to set up his own priesthood contrary to the priesthood that was ordained by Yahweh God with the sons of Aaron. So, according to the language of Jude, the fallen angels are still here. They are opposed to Christ. They are brute beasts. Mating with them is the pursuit of different flesh or strange flesh. They are bound in allegorical chains of darkness. They are, present tense, they are spots in our feasts of charity. They are twice dead trees. They are, they are broken cisterns. They're clouds without water. They can't hold the Spirit of God. The fallen angels are therefore people whom Yahweh did not plant. They're represented today by all the bastards and all the non-white races. The Apostle Peter talks about these same entities in the second chapter of his second epistle using language very similar to that of Jude. And there, Peter says of them in 2 Peter 2.12, but these, as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, 
and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. The fallen angels are the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because knowledge is experience. They were once good, and in their rebellion to God, described in Revelation chapter 12, they became evil. And Peter says that they're following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozor, who loved the way of unrighteousness. Well, okay. Balaam, what did he do? He counseled the children of... He, he counseled Balak, the king of the Moabites, to lure the children of Israel into improper sexual relations and bow worship, right? Right, and you've pointed out, too, the children of Belial. Does that literally mean the mixed or the worthless children? Yes. While it is apocryphal, it's apocryphal. I'm going to qualify the, book, the, the, the Enoch literature, right? The Enoch literature has to be considered apocryphal in any extant form. And while we should have reason to distrust the Ethiopic version of Enoch, and we should, we should be very careful with it, it is quite clear that the apostles quoted, and Jude does explicitly, the apostles quoted from a version of the book of Enoch which was available in their day and which we no longer have available to us in the same form. That's unfortunate. That's just the way it is. Studying the Enoch literature, which... Well, which I have done at length, um, not not as to the extent that I, I probably should, but I have at length, studying the Enoch literature, perhaps it is better that the fragments found in the Dead Sea Scrolls are considered rather than the Ethiopic version. And I trust them to a, to a somewhat greater extent than I do the Ethiopic. I'm going to read the following paragraph. It's from a paper I wrote, which is available at Christagenia. I wrote it 10 years ago, entitled The Problem with Genesis 6, Verses 1 through 4. Do you have any comments before I quote this? No, by all means, proceed. With this in mind, it is now possible to understand how a serpent, a member of this fallen race, could have seduced Eve, as the account in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 relates. This race, called the tree of knowledge of good and evil, in that account, and I refer to Genesis 2.9 and 2.17, which itself is a parable, was unmentioned in the creation of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, and, and at that time I had 10 years ago I identified that as a separate creation account ending at chapter 2, verse 3, simply because it was not a part of the creation here on earth in, in the world that we know, right? Which is the perspective of the creation story, which is itself a sort of prophetic vision a prophetic vision of things past, and, and that's a reference to the Genesis creation account of 1, 1 through 2, 3, right? The word translated day in these verses is more practically, practicably rendered age in context. And therefore, the earth may well have existed for, for 4 billion years. I don't believe it was 4 billion years. It could be 4 billion years. And my point is that who cares, right? The earth may well have existed for 4 billion years or so before Adam. 
and many other races of people have been here before the appearance of modern white man, as the fossil record and archaeology reveal. Yet no other race of men except Adamic white man can be accounted for as having been created by Yahweh, the God of the Bible. In the Enoch literature, in what is called the Book of Giants, the race of fallen angels is said to have perpetrated the corruption of species. From another edition of the Qumran Scrolls, entitled The Dead Sea Scrolls, a new translation by Michael Wise, Martin Abag Jr., and Edward Cook, on page 247, a translation of a scroll labeled 1Q23, fragments 1 and 6. And this is a highly fragmented scroll, but that's okay because it relates... It, it, it relates the, the, um, the story which I'm about to, to, to transmit from verse 1. 200 donkeys, 200 asses, 200 rams of the flock, 200 goats, 200 beasts of the field from every animal, from every bird, for miscegenation. And then, from that same source, 4Q531, a different scroll, fragment 2, they defiled. They begot giants and monsters. They begot, and behold, all the earth was corrupted with its blood and by the hand of giants, which did not suffice for them. And they were seeking to devour many. The monsters attacked it. And that's a very fragmented scroll. And again, the scroll, the Dead Sea Scroll labeled 4Q532, column 2, fragments 1 and 6, flesh, and, and there's a few ellipses here between words, which is why sometimes my words don't create sentences, right? Flesh, all monsters, will be, they would arise, lacking in true knowledge, because the earth grew corrupt, mighty, they were considering from the angels upon. In the end, it will perish and die. They caused great corruption in the earth. This did not suffice to. They will be. And, and that scroll is quite fragmentary, but the general theme of these fragments from the Enoch literature, from the literature which Jude and Peter were referring to, from what is known as the Book of Giants, is readily evident. A very similar version of this is found in, in one Enoch, the Ethiopic one Enoch, which we know in chapters 86 to 88. It is highly probable that accounts such as these were the inspiration for the ancient chimera myths of both Greek and Near Eastern mythology, and, and that the ancient world was replete with chimera myths of, of animals that were half of one thing and half of another, or even half man and half animal. And, and I believe this Enoch literature was the source for those myths. I have no doubt. However, we see that this Enoch literature does exist. It was in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and in the form that it was in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's lost to us now. Even though John Strugnall, who was a Catholic priest at Harvard and a Harvard professor, attested that a complete Aramaic Enoch was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it was there in 1967, but was missing 
when the scrolls were reopened to scholars by the Israelis in 1992 after 25 years. Well, you know, things seem to go missing when the Israelis are around. Right, all the time. Well, well, it's very um, evident, and, and it's evident from the Ethiopic Enoch, that these fallen angels had corrupted the creation of God by mixing all different species together and bastardizing that creation. Now, the Apostle John, in chapter 4 of his first epistle... Phil, may I inquire? It's a bit of a silly question. What would their purpose be in corrupting the creation of God? Since they've already lost the fight in heaven and they've been cast out, do they really think they can continue harming God, or are they just corrupted themselves and they're doing what comes natural? They're corrupting further. The corruption of creation was the fight in heaven. What if heaven is really allegorical? I mean, it doesn't matter to the story, right? It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to the Bible story. If you want to believe that the angels fell from space, if you want to believe that heaven is allegorical uh, of an existence they had here on earth and they revolted against God's creation and, and corrupted it, or if you want to believe that heaven is another plane of existence, any one of those three, I don't care which one you believe because I can't prove either of them. Any of the three are possible. But what if heaven is really uh, a higher level of civilization that these angels were granted by God here on earth? We're not really told in Genesis chapter 1. And, and, and they corrupted the creation which God made here on earth, and that was the act of rebellion which caused the war. I mean, or, or, or why they were tossed out of heaven, right? You know, there's things that we're not told. And we really shouldn't add to Scripture, but it's very clear that these fallen angels were here before Adam was. There was an entire tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden when Adam was put there, and that they had corrupted and continued to corrupt in the Genesis account itself. They continued to corrupt the creation of God. That's sensible. That's rational. The Apostle John, in chapter 4 of his first epistle, tells us that the people of Christ are born of God. And, and of course, the Gospels also tell us that Adam was the son of God. And that the enemies of Christ originated in the world and are not of God. From the King James Version, from 1 John, chapter 4. Beloved, believe not every spirit... But try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And I'll skip ahead to verse 4. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. In other words, them didn't have a choice in, in, in the gospel, right? They, they couldn't accept the gospel. It wasn't for them. Christ told them, you are not my sheep. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world. In other words, their origination is in the world. Just like Christ told them in John 8:44 that they had a different father than he had. Therefore, they speak of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. 
He that knows God hears us. He that is not of God hears not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And John goes on to explain that for this reason, those born of God should love one another. Now, the Apostle Paul tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, But if you be without chastisement, whereof we are all partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. We are sons of God, or we are bastards born of the world, which means to be born of the sins of the world. There's no third choice. And in all of the eschatological parables and promises of the Bible, whether they be New Testament or Old, there is no third choice. There is never a third choice given between the righteous men and the wicked men. The mystery of iniquity is entirely genetic. Therefore, the Apostle Peter tells us in the opening chapter of his first epistle, your souls, from verse 22, your souls having been purified in the obedience of truth for brotherly love without hypocrisy, from of a pure heart you should love one another earnestly, being engendered from above, and this from necessity is from the Christogenian New Testament, being engendered from above, not from corruptible parentage, but from incorruptible, by the word of Yahweh, who lives and abides, since all flesh is as grass, and all of its glory is a flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but that which is spoken by Yahweh abides for eternity. Now this is that which is spoken, which is announced to you. Well, if you don't have that spirit of God in your flesh, which is raised, that spiritual body which is raised, from the same seed which your physical body was raised from, if you're born of corruptible parentage, then you don't have eternal life. And when your flesh withers and fades away, there's nothing left. You're twice dead, according to Jude. But if you are a child of God, and you do have that spiritual body, it's still there when the flesh goes away. and you have eternal life. That's not fair. Can't they just go back to where they came from? Well, well, that's the recipe God created. Well, you know, in a sense, though, they are going back to where they came from, aren't they? Right. They are going back to where they came from, to ashes, in the lake of fire, in, in the allegorical lake of fire, right? There's not a real lake that people are going to get in line for, right? Right. Well, things that are of the world go back to the world. Absolutely. Even if we wanted to believe that non-white races were among the beasts of God's creation, which is a supposition which we do not have one shred of hard evidence to support, but even if we wanted to believe it, then we should heed the words of the Apostle Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 2, the Apostle, talking about those who were feasting among the children of Israel who do not belong, he calls them natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed. In the prophet Obadiah, the same thing is promised in verses 15 and 16. 
that all those eating upon Yahweh's holy mountain who don't belong there shall be as though they had never existed. Whenever Christians think of so-called pre-Adamic man, the first thing that should come to mind immediately is the fallen angels. If there's pre-Adamic white people, that's fine, because angels are ostensibly white. If you hear of pre-Adamic white people, think of fallen angels. Whenever Christians consider non-white races, the miscegenation of the fallen angels should immediately come to mind, and the scripture tells us that the fallen angels, according to the Apostle Jude, are walking around among us bound in chains of darkness. That's the meaning to the words of the Apostle Jude. Jude tells us they're walking amongst us. He tells us there's spots on our Feast of Charity as he tells us that those same people are bound in chains of darkness. Can I bounce a question off you? A fallen angel is a nigger. A fallen angel is an Arab. A fallen angel is basically any other race that's not white. They are the results of the miscegenation of the original fallen angels, which is why they're bound in chains of darkness. So, Bill, if we establish that they shall be as though they had never been, and I say to you, you know, um, it's written here, they shall be as though they have never been, and you say, oh, okay, so that means the Turks are going back to Turkey. That doesn't make sense. It's not a rational, logical conclusion from that verse. Well, the meaning of the Hebrew language is in that passage is that they shall be as though they had never existed, and that's how some of the more modern translations actually render it. Right. So that means their existence will cease. Well, they weren't created by God. God will not be mocked. He will not, in the end, he will not accept violations of his creation. No way. Right. And at the end of the day, the continuation of their existence would be mockery of God because it's not kind after kind. Like I said a few weeks ago, well, like I said last week, you can try to squeeze a nigger into Genesis. You sure as hell aren't going to squeeze a nigger into Revelation chapter 21 because the kingdom of heaven is only open to those who are born from above. If you're not born from above, John chapter 3, you shall not see the kingdom of heaven. You won't see it from the inside. You won't see it from the outside. You won't see it from far away. There are many other ways to look at this in Scripture. Let's look at Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sheba. Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sheba were at one time all great white nations. They all descended from Noah in Genesis chapter 10. They're all listed among the descendants of Noah. Yet, in Isaiah chapter 43, Yahweh says to the children of Israel, For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable. And I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Now, if Yahweh gave up Egypt and Ethiopia and Sheba for the children of Israel, who did he give them to? And if Negroes and Arabs overran those countries, and if Negroes and Arabs occupy those lands today, then Negroes and Arabs are among the enemies of Yahweh God. That's biblical reality. 
And there's no other way to explain the fates of Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sheba. Yahweh gave them up. He gave them up to his enemies. Those people that inhabit those lands now are the enemies that he gave those once great, great white nations up to. That's the pragmatic way to look at Scripture. That's the practical and realistic way to look at Scripture. And so, the other hypothetically, then, if someone has an Egyptian son-in-law, he can't go back to Egypt because he's not from Egypt. Egypt's not his land. It's our land. Right? I mean, m most of the Arabs and Turks, they're squatting on land that for several thousand years belonged to our people and was our inheritance. Well, well, if someone has an Egyptian son-in-law, he should write him off because that person is a natural brute beast made to be taken and destroyed according to the words of the apostles. Right, and no matter how hard they try, they're not squeezing them into the Genesis creation. Absolutely not. I'm having a problem with my internet connection. I apologize. You want me to um, continue on in Genesis? From Genesis 2.10, yes, please. Okay. And a river went out of Eden to the water to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. And the name of the first is Pison, that is it which compasses the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Bedellium and the Onx stone. And the name of the second river is Gion. The same is it that compasses the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hedekel. That is that which goes towards the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And Yahweh God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou may eat freely. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And Yahweh God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. So the people who believe then that the Negro was created in Genesis 2.5 or Genesis 2.5.2.7, this must be the same Negro creation then that's receiving the woman. And we know that can't be. Continuing. And out of the ground... Yahweh God well, formed... Well, let's well, slow down, slow oh, down. I didn't know oh. if I'd lost you. Way ahead of me. Oh. Genesis 2, 10 through 14. The river that went out to... The river that went out of Eden to water the garden. And it was parted into four heads. The Pisan, the Gihon, the Hidekel, and the Euphrates, these rivers are easily identifiable. 
Moses is giving a geographical description which correlates to his own time. It correlates to his time, which is approximately 1500 to 1450 B.C. The land of Havilah. The name of the first river is Pisan. That is it which compasses the whole land of Havilah, which where there is gold. The land of Havilah can be identified from Scripture as having been in Arabia, from Genesis 25:18, from 1 Samuel 15:7. Therefore, the first river can be identified with the river that is now dried out, and at one time it flowed through the Arabian desert, before it was desert. Archaeologists call this river the Kuwait River. They've identified it. They've identified its bed. They've identified its path. It evidently had its sources in the mountains of western Arabia near the Red Sea, and it flowed eastward across the entire Arabian River right to the Euphrates. The second river, the Gihon, seems to refer to the Karen River. The Karen River flows from the Zagros Mountains and currently empties into the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. The third river is the Tigris River, the Hidekel, which goes toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates, and together they encompass Mesopotamia. When you look at where those four rivers would be on a map, they all flow, all four of them flow into one river, which flows into the Persian Gulf. So there we have a perfect description of a single river which breaks into four pieces, into four different rivers, when you're looking at it backwards. So the garden is clearly in Mesopotamia. Absolutely. And, and that's that 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 yeah, you know the language of Moses. Even though you have to understand that the river in Saudi Arabia at one time existed, and that's proven archaeologically. Once you understand that, there, there's no way around the rest of the language. The rest of the language clearly puts all of this in Mesopotamia. And I don't know how these quacks in British Israel could say that the, the garden was in the Pamir Plateau when the language that Moses, is Moses a liar? What, was there some other Euphrates River we don't know about? I don't think Moses is a liar. All four of these rivers have to be connected into one at some point. And once you understand that geology that, that I have just explained, it's very clear that all four of these rivers connected in, into one, that they all drained into the same confluence, that the, that the Tigris and Euphrates rivers still drain into, and, and the Karen River still drain into today. Well, let me ask you, what would you say to the people who claim the entire planet is the garden? Well, that's absolutely contrary to Scripture. That's absolutely contrary to Scripture. The garden is a portion eastward, of, a portion of the land which is eastward in Eden, right? 
Right, so if some clown's out there claiming Yahweh made the universe and planted a garden in it, referring to the planet Earth, that's just some delusion. Well, well, there's a lot of Bible clowns that want to interpret the Bible on their own, apart from history and the rest of Scripture, that they want to make their own Genesis interpretation that fits their own worldview. And, 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 and that, that's... To, to me, that, that's why I identify those people as clowns. That's what they are. You know better than God. If you think you know better than God, well, well, that's fine. I guess you have every right to do that in today's corrupt society, but you're a clown. And, and, and for every reader of Genesis, um, the, the, there's basically for every ten people that read Genesis, there seem to be nine clowns. They want to invent their own Bible. They want to suppose that this is that and, and this other thing is something else. They, they want to make those suppositions w without any knowledge of the time that this was written and, and the rest of Scripture and, and the, the historical situation. They don't care about any of that. They just want to take it and, and adapt it to their own world. Well, you know, a lot of them, too, they're looking to attract followers, and if all they do is teach every, you know, um, the same that everyone else is teaching, there's nothing to set them apart. So they act as though they have some special knowledge and special insight. And, oh, if you follow me, you'll be one of the few people that understands this special message. Well, there's no doubt. So they, now, attract, they attract people who want to feel um, unique. Right. And they make them feel they're adept at making people feel unique, so that they can hold on to their their listeners. And and I'm just about the scripture. That's all that matters. The scripture matters. The feelings of men don't matter at all. These four rivers emptied into the Persian Gulf, running into the same confluence. And three of these rivers are still there today. Of course, the 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 the, um, the Pishon is dried up. Evidently, as can also be determined from ancient history, the Arabian Peninsula was a much more fertile place at one time. It wasn't always the barren desert that it is today. And, and in fact, you know, the Greeks called it Blessed Arabia. The Romans called it Arabia Felix, which is really like Happy Arabia. However, the English version of the language of Genesis seems to indicate that the rivers flowed in the opposite direction. And, and it does, if you read it carefully. And we are informed that it had not yet rained upon the earth in verse 5 of, of this chapter, right? So the rivers may not have formed in the manner which we today understand the forming of rivers through rainfall. But the Greek version reads differently. The Greek of the Septuagint, I'm not talking about Brenton's Septuagint, I'm talking about the Greek of the Septuagint. The Greek version says that the river was divided into four beginnings or four sources and not necessarily into four heads. Therefore, however the antediluvian or pre-flood, right, ecosystem functioned, we can, what we can conclude here is that Moses depicted the ancient Garden of Eden as all of the land from the current-day Arabian Peninsula in the Red Sea in the west to the Zagros Mountains of Persia in the east, because that's the span of land that these rivers encompass. And that this Eden was centered in the ancient land of Sumer, right in the cradle of civilization, as it was later called Babylonia. 
All of this is simple biblical interpretation, and it excludes the British-Israel 19th century pipe dreams, which identified the Pamir Plateau as the homeland of the original patriarchs, and, and a whole lot of other harebrained quack quacky theories that we've met with along the way, we should just accept the Bible for what it says and not try to mold the Bible into something that we want it to be. Are you oh, still with me? What would you no argue, you'll get no argument from me. <laughs> would you like to read Genesis 2.15? And Yahweh God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So if we're to believe that this Adam man is a Negro, Negroes can't keep anything orderly. Well, well I mean, the, the, the whole Negro idea is ridiculous. Right, so it, this is just further evidence that it's ridiculous. That the entire Negro idea in, in Genesis, that, that Adam could be a Negro, is contrary to all history. It's not only contrary to the language, it's contrary to all scripture. It, it, it's an idea which would cause the word of God to violate itself, the, the law of kind after kind, but it's contrary to all history because it's very clear from ancient history and from archaeology and from the Bible that the Genesis 10 nations are the advent of white society in this world. And all of those nations, it can be demonstrated in history and archaeology, were white nations. Adam could not have been a nigger. Certainly not. Uh, even Negroes would love to believe that. And, and a lot of um, New England liberals would love to believe that. And the Jews would, would say, that's a great idea, and then they'd start insisting on it. But it's simply not true. 16. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Well, well it doesn't really matter whether you eat, well, whether the every tree of the garden here is taken literally or figuratively, it doesn't really matter, because if it refers to food trees, that's fine. And if it refers to trees which describe the later Adamic families which grew out of Adam, well, that's fine. One may imagine this to be a parable and that Adam's instructions were possibly to create a culture. And therefore he is depicted as one who is commanded to cultivate a garden, the garden being the garden of God and the establishment of of a society formed around a race of people in his image. And that would have to be, if we want to interpret every tree of the garden to be allegorical, that would be the way that we would have to interpret it because that is the same story told later in the prophets as we quoted from Ezekiel chapter 31. The reference to every tree in the garden, therefore, any way you want to look at it, can't be a reference to other so-called races. Those races are not a part of the tree of life and have never, they have never, until the sins of our recent past, they've never been included in white culture. They've never been given the law of God. They've never been 
cultivated by Adamic man. I'm not talking about the last 400 years when, when we got this, this Jesuit idea of egalitarianism and the idea that we should civilize the other races. If God wanted to civilize the other races, he'd have given them his law 5,000 years ago. Yet we're told explicitly in Scripture that the law is only for the children of Israel. So, so if God wanted to civilize the other races, he'd have found shepherds to set over them thousands of years ago. It's only in this age when Satan has gathered all these other peoples as a fulfillment of Scripture against the white race that we suddenly have the idea that we should civilize the other races. Well, that's the device by which Satan has gathered them against us. Well, we're basically trying to make clean that which by definition is unclean. Well, absolutely. The, um, the other races are branches on a tree of knowledge of good and evil. The angels chained in darkness, according to the Apostle Jude, are spots in our feasts of charity. And who are spots in our feasts of charity if not these people of other races feasting on our tax dollars, feasting on our Christian society. There's no more obvious spots in our feast of charity than that. The other races are branches on a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and Adam was told to stay away from them. They are angels bound in chains of darkness. That is why... The parable of the net contains only two races of fish, two kinds of fish, good fish and bad fish. Yahweh made nothing bad. There's nothing that Yahweh made in Genesis that was bad, but there are bad fish in the parable of the net. Those bad fish are from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. Because that word translated evil, go look it up in your strongest concordance. It can be translated bad. Those bad fish in the parable of the net, the kingdom of heaven is like a net. When cast into the sea, it will pull up every kind, fish of every race. The word is genos. And the good are stored in vessels. And the bad are taken and cast into the fire. Those bad fish, they are from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. A parable is a story which uses symbols and allegories to relate some truth related to a greater lesson or principle. Therefore, these early chapters of Genesis are actually a series of episodes in, told in parables. And as we clearly saw in Genesis chapter 1, or better, the first scroll of Genesis, they need not necessarily be understood in exact chronological order. However, they do need to be understood in context with the revelations of Christ in the New Testament. Genesis 2.18. All right. And Yahweh God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. And out of the ground, Yahweh God formed every beast of the field, every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. 
And Adam gave names to all the cattle and to all the, all the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found an helpmeet for him. So the naysayers in Genesis, that say in Genesis 1, I think it's 126, when he says, let us make man in our image, they claim that that's the creation. Well, here God said that he will make a helpmeet for Adam, but here we are in verse 20, and the helpmeet still hasn't been made yet, because 18 is not the creation of the helpmeet. It's the declaration of intent to make the helpmeet. Well, this is not a new creation of animal kind. Rather, it's a reference back to the fifth day of creation where God already created the animals. This is another Genesis recapitulation. Now, the animals which God created are presented to Adam. However, Adam found that none of them were suitable to mate with. Now, of course, Yahweh already knew that none of them were suitable to mate to mate with, and already stated his intention to create a mate for Adam. However, the animals were still nevertheless presented to Adam so that Adam could decide that there was no helpmate for him. But for Adam, there was not a helpmate for him. And here here is, I believe, the reason that we had this story in Genesis. The sin of the fallen angels was to miscegenate themselves with animal kind, as we're told in the Enoch literature. Once we realize that, it becomes quite evident here that Adam is given a lesson that nothing in animal kind is suitable for him to mate with. Well, I'd like to make a, a comment on that, sort of a joke. It occurred to me, uh, if if the Jews are right and they claim that the Bible, you know, is their book and Adam's a Jew, he wouldn't have been naming the animals as God brought the animals forth to him. He would have been sodomizing the animals. <laughs> yeah, right. He could have been sodomizing them or selling them to Goyim. <laughs> yeah, you know, once we realize that the sin of the fallen angels was to miscegenate and corrupt the creation of God, and once we realize that this story in, 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 of Adam's being presented all of the animals by God was so that Adam could decide that none of these Adam, animals were suitable to mate with, we see that Adam is basically overcoming the miscegenation of the fallen angels and understanding that he needs a wife who is flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. And that is what I believe we have going on here. That Adam would be distinguished from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which corrupted the creation of God. Although, of course, his wife was later seduced. And he accepted that seduction, but that's a different story. All right, 21. Please. And Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which Yahweh God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. 
Well, first, the only suitable mate for any white man is a white woman who is the, the same flesh and the same bone. And Jude tells us in his short epistle that fornication is the pursuit of different or strange flesh. And there were many warnings in the New Testament not to commit fornication and other proofs that fornication is indeed race mixing. So the realization is that Adam's legitimate wife and his only legitimate wife, wife could be flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. They were naked and they were not ashamed. However, in Genesis chapter 3, we shall see that a race-mixing incident does occur and that they were indeed ashamed of their nakedness after that. And with that, we will close this presentation. Do you have any closing comments? I think Genesis 3 will be very interesting and I'll have quite a lot to add and comment on. Well, I pray, and we have a, a, a set. We're going to do something on the beast of the field in the coming weeks. I, I, I'd like to go through some of the scriptures that um, people like to use to insist that the beast, the term beast of the field, is a biological definition, and 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 for that reason, they have to be in the beast creation of Genesis one twenty five. That's simply not true. It's not a biological reference. It's a pejorative. It's a slur. It's like when I call those same people clowns, I don't mean that they wear red noses and big shoes and go work at the circus. I'm using the term clown as a pejorative. I'm probably insulting the real clowns by doing right. it. Or if you tell someone that he's stuffing his face like a pig or he's eating like a hog, you don't mean that he has a curly tail and he's pink and he rolls around in mud. The term beast of the field is sometimes used in scripture of people of other races because that's the only epithet they really deserve. And it's a pejorative. It's not a biological designation. It's not a designation. Adam didn't name these beasts of the field from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He named the animals which Yahweh created. And I don't think that any any of them were hominids of the non-Adamic races. And even if they were, then they're, they're still beasts, and they're always going to be beasts, and they're never going to be men, because Adam was the first man, and all men descended from Adam. Paul, in Romans chapter 5, takes that word man, and equates it to Adam. How could you apply it to beasts? That's the biggest Jew trick in history was when they got us to start calling beasts by the term man. And that's gotten us into all the trouble that we're in right now. Thank you for joining me. Praise Yahweh. I will be here Friday night with Acts chapter 17. We will be here next week on Saturday, Yahweh willing, with the fourth installment of this series on 2C line and pragmatic Genesis. Praise Yahweh and good night. Praise Yahweh.
Yeah. <laughs> 